It's the 9th of October, 1891. A Friday, to be exact. One o'clock in the afternoon. A man named Frederick Davis is dusting furniture in the Speaker's room in the Victorian Parliament House. The colonies won't federate for another ten years, and in many ways, Victoria, New South Wales, South Australia and Western Australia, the Northern Territory at this time was part of South Australia, were effectively being run like their own little countries. However, talk of federation is in the air, but Davis probably isn't thinking about that right now. He's noticed something peculiar, something alarming. In the Speaker's room is a large oak case containing the parliamentary mace used by the Legislative Assembly, the lower house of the Victorian Parliament. The mace is ceremonial these days, although this wasn't always the case, and it represents the authority of the Speaker. It's five feet, about one and a half metres long, made of silver and plated with gold. In total, it weighs about seven and a half kilos and it is a work of art. It's topped with a replica of the sovereign's crown and entwined from the top to the bottom with a delicate pattern of interwoven rosals, thistles, shamrocks and eucalyptus leaves representing England, Scotland, Ireland and Victoria. Davis last saw it in the early hours of the morning when he accompanied George Edward Upward, the sergeant-at-arms, to put the mace back in its case. That was 12.40am after the Legislative Assembly had debated long into the night and, apart from Upward, Davis is the only man in the building, indeed the whole colony, who knows where the key to that very important case is kept. And right now, he has good reason to be worried. Because the oak case, solid, beautiful and unblemished when he and Upward last saw it this morning, is looking rather worse for wear. It's still locked, but there are scrapes and scratches on the front and the mechanism has been damaged as if someone had pried it open in the night... The key is still in its hiding place, and Davis manages to force open the damage lock. But the case is empty. The mace is gone. A search is mounted. The police called in, and every piece of evidence is poured over, but to no avail. By Tuesday, it's very clear that the mace has been stolen. But by who? And why? And to this day... Despite a $50,000 reward on offer, the mace has never been seen again. Or has it? I'm Juliana, and you're listening to The Skeptical Historian. Hello, my fellow skeptics. Thank you once again for tuning in. As always, I would like to begin this episode by acknowledging the Wurundjeri, Woiwurrung, and Boonwurrung people on whose lands I am podcasting today and pay my respects to their elders, past, present, and emerging. Shout out also to Studio 4 at the State Library of Victoria, where this episode is being recorded. For more information or to book the studio yourself, please head to www.slv.com. 
Now, before we delve too deep into the horror that poor Frederick Davis undoubtedly felt when he opened that cupboard, I want to take a step back and set the scene. Melbourne in 1891 was not doing particularly well. To quote from an article on the subject of the missing mace by Catherine Ferguson, the Victorian gold rush was over, the economy had crumbled, and women were seen gadding about town on bicycles demanding the vote. Anxieties and unemployment were running high, while the market and morale were running low. In 1890, the banking infrastructure was crumbling, land prices had dropped dramatically, and a maritime strike paralysed the docks. In 1891, British capital stopped coming in, the sewers caught fire, and the city flooded and was besieged by plagues of bankruptcies and locusts. Interestingly, the sewer fire actually occurred on the night of the 9th of October, just hours after the mace was discovered stolen. There's no suggestion at all that the two events were related. The fire was caused by a leak in a gas main. And when the gas company had to turn off the gas to prevent an explosion, Melbourne not only had to deal with plagues of locusts and bankruptcies, but a plague of darkness as well. But it is really quite incredible that in this environment, the theft of the parliamentary mace captured so much attention and column inches. The loss of a fancy stick nicked from an increasingly unpopular government isn't really much when your sewers are on fire and you're fighting off a plague of locusts. Which, I've lived through a locust plague, and even if you don't own land and the damn things aren't eating your livelihood, it's horrible. Locusts are incredibly stupid, even by insect standards. They fly into you wherever you go, and if they get into your eyes and your ears, it's actually really painful. They find their way into your house, they get into your clothes, your shoes, your hair, just everywhere, and they sing. Or, I don't really think it could be called singing, it's more like nails on a chalkboard, and it's horrible. With everything else going on for the poor residents of Melbourne in 1891, they really didn't need locusts. Perhaps it was because of all the calamity and tragedy that this story was so heavily reported. For once, the papers could write about something other than bankruptcies, fires, floods, deaths and locusts. And the ludicrousy of the story as it started to take off, and that story may have involved a drunken minister, an exclusive brothel, a few petty thieves and a rather embarrassing cover-up, more on that later, captured people's imaginations and made them want to know more. It ensured that papers would sell. But what is the mace exactly? And why is it so important to Parliament? Cultures all around the world have used ceremonial maces, but Victoria's mace follows the British tradition, so I'll be looking at that history for this part of the episode. The Victorian government is based on the Westminster model of Parliament, Um, The Australian federal government actually is too, but there was no federal government in Australia at this time. So that means there are two houses, the upper and the lower house. Today, the lower house is called the Legislative Assembly and the upper house is called the Legislative Council. Now, while the Legislative Council is called the upper house, it actually has no control over the Legislative Assembly and it's not a superior chamber. 
In Victoria in 1891, both these houses were elected, which was actually a little bit unusual in the British Empire at this time. Even in Britain itself, the upper chamber, which was the House of Lords, was being controlled by a hereditary aristocracy. There were no elections. I do believe to this day the House of Lords is unelected and unrepresentative. Any British listeners correct me on that if I am wrong. Something that was also happening in Victoria and in most Australian colonies at the time was that there was universal manhood suffrage and both those chambers were being elected. Again, unusual. In Britain itself, universal manhood suffrage wouldn't come until after the First World War. Now, the job of the Legislative Assembly is to introduce bills, debate them and to make and pass legislation. And it's the job of the Legislative Council to review these bills and legislation and provide a bit of a check and balance to ensure that power is not concentrated within one group or one person. Now, the Legislative Council can introduce bills, but they also need to be debated in the Legislative Assembly before they can pass. And there's a process that needs to be followed for this to occur. I'm not going to get into the ins and outs of the Westminster model of parliament or whether it functions as intended. But now that you have a basic grasp of how politics worked in Victoria in 1891 and actually still works today in much the same way, we can move on to the role of the Legislative Assembly's mace. In the early days of parliament in Britain, and we have to start over there because Australian parliament slavishly copied British tradition in the first centuries after invasion, but back in Britain when the monarch was all powerful, the mace actually had a practical function. It was a weapon carried by the sergeant at arms who was the monarch's personal bodyguard. Parliament could be a very lively and dangerous place back in those days and there is a legend that the distance between the opposition and government benches was exactly two swords and one inch wide to stop members from being able to murder each other in the chamber. There's no official record of this however and swords or weapons of any kind actually had been banned in British parliaments for a long time. The only weapon allowed in the chamber was the mace because back then the monarch had to be present for parliament to sit so their bodyguard had to be in attendance. If anyone tried to harm the king or queen, the sergeant-at-arms would leap up with their mace and defend the sovereign. The reason a mace was the preferred weapon at this time was because heavy armour was still in use so they needed a heavy weapon to protect the life of the monarch should they be accosted by an armoured foe. As a weapon, the mace began to slowly fall out of favour as heavy armour began to disappear around the 17th century. However, its ceremonial use actually goes all the way back to the 13th century. Remember, the monarch in Britain used to be all-powerful and compared to the length of time that monarchy has been ruling in Britain, the system of constitutional monarchy is relatively recent. In those days of absolute power, many monarchs resented having to be present for parliament to sit and many parliamentarians disliked having to wait on the monarch to be able to get on with the business of running parliament. The ceremonial mace became a compromise. It represented the authority of the monarch, so as long as it was in the chamber, 
Parliament could go about doing whatever it was that parliaments did in the 13th century. However, whatever it was that 13th century parliaments did do, they couldn't do it without the mace or without the monarch being present. Slowly, though, as the monarch's power diminished and parliaments grew, it became very rare for the king or queen to ever be in parliament except if they were opening parliament or closing it or, on very rare occasions, dissolving it. And so the mace became a relic. It's still used in the UK today in exactly the same way. It represents the monarch's authority and parliament can't sit or pass laws without it. Like a lot of old traditions that are carried on just because, it sounds faintly comical when you try and describe it. After all, parliaments don't actually need fancy sticks to make laws. But then again, few institutions are more attached to their traditions than parliaments. In the Victorian parliament, both back in 1891 and today, the mace served much the same function although with one important difference. Rather than representing the authority of the monarch over the colony, it represents the authority of the speaker over the legislative assembly. The speaker keeps order in the chamber and ensures that all MPs follow the standing orders or rules of parliament and ensures that everyone is able to speak, debate and, I suppose, run representative government. The Speaker is also empowered to expel MPs from the chamber if they don't follow the rules and can impose certain punishments on those MPs before they're allowed back in to fulfil their function. As you can imagine, this has been abused in the past and unfortunately is still abused in some places in the world, but such instances are very rare in Australia these days. And while I'm sure there have been plenty of occasions when the Speaker has wished they could silence an unruly colleague with a bang from the mace, the worst they can do these days is bang their gavel. As for the mace, it's brought into the chamber by the sergeant-at-arms at the beginning of a session and carried out again at the end. That's literally it. It sits on a special little stand in the middle of a big table and does nothing. As mentioned, Melbourne was in a state of serious upheaval in 1891 and someone stealing a fancy stick that did absolutely nothing really shouldn't have been news. Burning sewers, plagues of locusts, bankruptcies, suffragettes. But instead of reporting on all these things, the papers dedicated page after page, at least for the first few days, to the mystery of the missing mace. Now, if Melbourne had been relatively stable, I would have expected the missing mace to be news. It's the kind of thing that slow news days are made of, to be honest. Breaking news. Fancy ceremonial stick with no useful function. Stolen from Parliament. Now, I've mentioned already that some rather lurid stories of the mace's fate made their way into the papers, and we will examine those in a moment. The fact that this story continued to grab headlines at the time is doubly surprising when you learn that the loss of the mace didn't actually inconvenience Parliament at all. They just got the original mace made of wood covered in gold leaf from an attic and carried on with business as usual. Of course, given the calamities in Melbourne at the time, I can imagine there would have been public uproar 
if the government had decided to shut up shop because their mace had been stolen. They also had another one, made in exactly the same way as the stolen one, crafted very quickly and the old wooden club soon found itself back in storage. That second mace is still the one used in the parliament today, although they haven't quite given up looking for the original. But who would steal a mace? And how did they do it without being noticed? It was five feet long, made of silver and plated with gold. Not exactly an easy thing to shove under your jacket and walk out with. It was also distinctive. Not many people were walking around Victoria with golden maces in 1891, after all. We'll examine the main suspects and their stories right after this break. I hope you haven't been stolen away during the break, Skeptics, because here is where this episode gets fun. We've been through all the boring background and can now dive into the best parts of any unsolved mystery. The crime itself and the suspects at large. Or no one's really at large in this story because anyone who was involved will be long dead by now. But let's jump in anyway. First, let's examine the scene of the crime. The mace was kept at the Victorian Parliament, locked in a solid oak case in the Speaker's Chambers, which functioned as a kind of combined office, meeting room and lounge for the Speaker. At this time, that is 1891, the Speaker of the Victorian Legislative Assembly was Mr Matthew Davis, no relation to the doorman Frederick Davis, who discovered the mace was missing. As we heard, Parliament finished very late, or you could argue very early, at 20 to 1 in the morning on the 9th of October 1891. And the ministers all headed out. Some went home, others headed off to the bars or brothels to enjoy themselves after a long day arguing with each other. Parliament wasn't sitting during the day of the 9th, and Frederick Davis didn't discover the mace was missing until one o'clock in the afternoon, so a little bit over 12 hours after Parliament had broken up. So who was in Parliament House between when the members left and when Davis found the mace missing? Actually, there were quite a few people there. The Sergeant-at-Arms, George Upward, and a clerk to the Legislative Assembly both lived on the premises, Now, their rooms were directly above the Speaker's chamber and, interestingly, they did claim to have been woken by an unspecified noise at about five o'clock in the morning. However, it wasn't unusual enough for anyone to go and investigate and there's no proof that this was the time the mace was stolen. Also, the fact that they didn't investigate further suggests to me that while the noise might have been loud, it was something identifiable to them. Two caretakers in their families also lived on the premises, but they were quickly discounted as suspects. Honestly, I wouldn't be surprised if the noise upward and the clerk heard may have been one of these caretakers, making sure the officers were spick and span for the day. Their work would have generally been done early in the morning or late in the day so that they weren't seen by the ministers or visitors. During the initial investigation, police suspected that the thief might have entered Parliament House through an open window. Now, the window of the Speaker's chambers had been left open that morning, and three fingerprints were discovered on the windowsill. 
although technology at the time meant it was impossible to find out who they belonged to or how they got there. They are on file today, but there's never been a match. This window, though, the window in the speaker's chambers, looked out over a building site where construction workers were putting together the new north wing of Parliament House. And it is from here that we get our first theory. Police initially suspected that a workman might have used a ladder to climb up to the window and make his way into the speaker's chamber before using his tools to prise open the oak case and make off with the mace. At first blush, it does seem plausible, but closer inspection makes it unlikely. While a construction worker's ladder would have been easily able to reach the speaker's open window, and such a man would have had the tools with which to break open the locks on the case, the question of logistics arises on his escape. It's much harder to climb out a window and down a ladder with a five-foot-long gold and silver mace in your hands, and you'd be pretty conspicuous too. The building also wasn't happening right up against the speaker's chamber. It was occurring next door. So any workman putting his ladder there would have been very obviously in the wrong place, and if he'd done it during construction hours, he would have been seen by his fellows and people in the street around him. So he would have had to do it at night. But given how late Parliament sat that night and the number of people who both lived there and were out on the street, I find it very difficult to believe that someone wouldn't have noticed a ladder-wielding thief scrambling up towards the Speaker's chamber. It's also worth pointing out that those fingerprints that got the police so excited, well, there's no evidence they actually had anything to do with the theft. They could have been there for any length of time and I think it's highly unlikely that someone would be able to enter and exit from a high window carrying the mace. It's much more probable that the thief was someone who knew the layout of Parliament House and knew where the mace was kept. Frederick Davis and George Upward were prime suspects in the initial days of the investigation but they were discounted when, among other things, Both pointed out that they had keys to the case, so wouldn't have needed to break open the lock if they'd wanted to steal the mace. So who else knew Parliament House well enough to know where the mace was and to take it without being seen? Enter our next suspect, Thomas Jeffrey. During an inquiry into the mace's whereabouts in 1893, and I'll explain why it took so long to have an inquiry in a moment, A tram driver named James Merrick made the following statement, as reported by the Argus. A man came out of the small gate at the back of Parliament House, but in 12 noon and 1pm on Friday, that is, the day the mace went missing, he carried a large parcel, some five feet long, thin at one end and bulky at the other, tied up in brown paper, and without hailing the conductor, jumped onto the tram. In doing so, the parcel struck the railing and caused a metallic sound. (coughs) The mysterious passenger was identified as Geoffrey, a parliamentary engineer who had been at Parliament House the day the mace was stolen. The papers honed in on Geoffrey and the police and the sergeant-at-arms 
pegged him as their number one suspect and began to press him hard. Reading his story in the paper, Jeffrey really does himself no favours. He's constantly contradicting himself. Initially, he claimed he wasn't at Parliament House that day and then admitted he was. He said that he didn't take a package away, then six days later admitted he did. He denied he'd caught the tram and then changed his story, saying that he might have done because his wife was ill and he wanted to go home to see her. The package in question was, he claimed, a collection of discarded wood, zinc and wire that he intended to use in his workshop. Jeffrey was actually known for taking scraps home for this purpose. Now, all this chopping and changing on the surface may seem very suspicious, but remember that Jeffrey was being asked very specific questions 18 months after the fact. Very few people can give a blow-by-blow account of exactly where they were and what they were doing on a particular day at a particular time 18 months ago. But beyond that, I have two problems with the idea that Jeffrey was the thief. While he does seem to fit the profile, he knew Parliament House very well, he was there that day, he could have got in and out of the building without being challenged, and he was known for taking mysterious packages in and out, he also knew things that others didn't. Firstly, he knew that the mace was hollow and, more importantly, that it could be broken down into 10 individual pieces. It was actually one of his jobs to take it apart when requested, such as if it needed mending or cleaning. So why, if he'd wanted to steal it, would he have kept it whole? He could have taken it apart, shoved it in a backpack and walked out without anyone being suspicious. The other thing he knew, and also that everyone in Parliament knew, although the public was unaware until the first reports of the theft came out, was that the mace wasn't valuable. The general public believed it was solid gold, which is not an unreasonable assumption. Victoria had been built on the back of several major gold rushes, and if you look at any building in Melbourne, Ballarat, Bendigo, Castlemaine, or other gold towns from that period, you can see traces of that past in the gilding on the facades. However, most ordinary people don't know how dense gold is, and wouldn't have known that a mace made of solid gold would have been impossible for anyone to lift, let alone to carry. As mentioned, the mace was actually a hollow silver tube that had been plated with gold, so it was light, as well as relatively cheap. Because it was assumed to be made of gold by the public, however, it was also assumed by the public to be extremely valuable. However, it had only cost £300, and much of that was just to pay the silversmith for the craftsmanship. If the mace was melted down, police at the time estimated that the small amount of gold plate and the hollow silver tube would be worth all of £40. Not a great return in anyone's book. What's more... Jeffrey had worked at Parliament House for more than 20 years. He was a trusted employee and, by all accounts, he liked his job. In the middle of an economic depression, with a family to support, he wasn't going to risk a stable income for the sake of £40. That would have been less than his annual wage. And 
would have come with the added risk of losing his job, facing criminal charges and being jailed, all while his wife was unwell. Not a very likely scenario. It's also worth remembering that the tram driver who fingered Jeffrey was recalling events 18 months after the fact and that his description of the package matches the mace almost too perfectly. Most people had never seen the mace or knew what it looked like until pictures and a description were published after the theft. James Merrick, the tram driver, may very well have seen Thomas Jeffrey leap onto a tram with a package, but is it really likely that it was exactly the size and shape of the mace? And if so, why wait until the inquiry, taking place almost two years later, to tell the police about it. Remember back when we talked about memory in the episodes about alien big cats and Frederick Baker's ghost? I think something similar probably happened to James Merrick. He saw Jeffrey with a package, but at the time thought nothing of it and paid it no further notice. Then an inquiry was called following a rather sensational story, which we'll get to in a moment, and Merrick recalled Jeffrey and his package. But now that Merrick knew what the mace looked like and he knew it had been stolen the day he'd seen Jeffrey, his brain just filled in the blanks. He wasn't lying about what he saw, but his brain had just created a new memory based on information he received after the fact. Police searched Jeffrey's house at the time of the theft too and his workshop on multiple occasions, but they never found any evidence of the mace. Despite this, he remained the prime suspect until he died, although he was never charged with any crime. Another rather more tame theory is that a group of ministers took the mace for a laugh after a long night sitting in Parliament. They intended to put it back after getting everyone's knickers in a twist, just to show how silly the whole thing was and possibly to protest over how long Parliament had been sitting that day. However, they didn't anticipate the press response and by the time they realised how much trouble they'd caused, there was no way for them to put it back without arousing suspicion. Instead, they threw the mace in the Yarra River and never spoke of it again. This theory was investigated, of course, but given it was light on detail and no minister admitted he'd been involved, and really, what minister would... It never went very far. But there is one other story we're going to examine today. This one is the most famous, or perhaps infamous, theory about what happened to the mace and involves a few drunken ministers, the red light district of Little Lonsdale Street, a wild party, and the mace being used for, and I quote, less than proper parliamentary proceedings. Don't go anywhere, sceptics. You'll want to hear this one. And we're back, and I hope you are ready to join me for one wild ride. The initial investigation in 1891 didn't turn up much in regards to the missing mace, and despite later claims of incompetence, it was actually a well-run police investigation. By 1892... Most people had forgotten about the stolen stick and were much too busy getting on with their lives to worry about it at all. 
Then, in 1893, a gossip magazine published a sensational claim about where it was and it wasn't long before more respectable newspapers were repeating the claim verbatim. Let me give you a summary. Supposedly, in the early hours of the morning after Parliament's late sitting, a few MPs decided they weren't ready to go home. Instead, they headed across to Little Lonsdale Street, Melbourne's notorious red light district, and into the brothels controlled by Melbourne's three most infamous madames, Annie Wilson, Scotch Maud, and Madame Brussels herself. Liquor and sex flowed freely through the wee hours of the morning, and at one point, a minister thought what fun it would be to go and get the mace from across the road and conduct, as historian Catherine Ferguson put it, a parliament of whores. Somehow, this unnamed, drunken minister managed to cross the street to Parliament House, stumble around until he found the Speaker's chamber, happened to have the tools necessary to break open the oak case, stole the mace, had the sense to seal the case up once more after he'd got it, then got back out and across the street, all without being seen or heard by anyone. When these ministers awoke at a more sensible hour of the morning, hungover and worn out from their wild party, they forgot to put the mace back. By the time they'd sobered up, the trouble had begun and rather than trying to return it and risk being caught, they paid two petty criminals to toss it into the Yarra River and put it to sleep with the fishes. Table Talk, which was a gossip magazine of the day, was less interested in the mace's eventual fate, if indeed it did get thrown in the Yarra, and instead published lurid accounts of exactly what they claimed had occurred once the mace was inside the brothel. Mm. I'm not going into details, this is a family show after all, but the story didn't really gain traction until it was picked up by the Ballarat Courier and then some other papers closer to Melbourne. After publishing every salacious detail of this improbable story as if it were ironclad fact, the Courier finished their article by calling for Parliament to be shut down completely, lest its evil example would debauch the country. Nothing sells quite like a political sex scandal after all, and boy oh boy did this one sell. Now, for the record, there's absolutely no evidence whatsoever that the mace made its way to Little Lonsdale Street, or that any fearful orgies, as the papers called them, took place in its proximity. But these rumours, as rumours often are, were incredibly damaging. One paper claimed that the speaker himself, Matthew Davis, had been one of those involved in these low travesties of parliamentary procedure. After all, as the speaker, the paper reasoned, Mr Davis would have known exactly where the mace was. Davis protested his innocence but his colleagues successfully used the story to pass a motion of no confidence and he was forced to resign. Politics is brutal, but being forced out by your own colleagues for doing absolutely nothing is particularly low. It was these stories as well that forced Parliament to hold the inquiry about the Mace's whereabouts in 1893, 18 months after it had been stolen. 
was a wholly unnecessary proceeding and given the depression that in Melbourne was ongoing, it was an incredible waste of money too. It was quite expensive. It also seems, dare I say it, ridiculously out of touch to conduct an inquiry into whether a fancy stick might have been used as a sex toy when people on the street are struggling to afford the basic necessities of life. I'm sure the government could have found something much better to spend all that money they threw at this inquiry on. And it was also because of this story that Thomas Jeffrey was hauled before Parliament to make an account of himself and his seemingly suspicious package. Jeffrey had already been investigated by police in 1891. And remember also that he knew the mace could be broken apart. He knew it wasn't valuable. And I think what's really suspicious about that story is that James Merrick didn't come forward with his claim about Jeffrey and his package sooner when police were first conducting inquiries. Because that's the other thing to bear in mind here. An investigation had been conducted in 1891 and it had been conducted well despite the fact that the mace remained missing. Unfortunately, however, rather than allow police to make any of their reports public, Parliament made the mistake of keeping all the police reports about the mace confidential, having them tabled so that the public didn't get the information they wanted and so the newspapers started to suggest that the police were either incompetent, corrupt or both. Of course, plenty of police in the 1890s were incompetent and corrupt, just like plenty of police are today. But the records show that the investigation into the Mace's possible whereabouts in 1891 was comprehensive. And the police followed all known leads and some unknown ones too. The inquiry in 1893 did another investigation and found that there was no evidence whatsoever of the mace being taken to a brothel. That's it. The end. Case closed. Or not. This story continues to live on in the public imagination, I'm afraid, and it's commonly repeated across the internet as if it's true. Now, had this happened, this would have involved a major cover-up, and if there's one thing we know about cover-ups, it's that they're not nearly as common or as simple as the movies would like us to believe. Also, something as seedy and salacious as this is unlikely to have been able to be covered up so thoroughly. Cover-ups need everyone involved to keep the secret. And while any ministers involved might have been able to keep silent in the face of a reward one was offered at the time, it would have been very easy for any of the brothel madams or their workers or even a go-between to slip the police information, or even the mace itself if it was still there, in exchange for immunity from any future prosecution and a cut of the reward money. The madames would have had no trouble bringing other clients to the brothel if the politicians stopped coming, and as long as they kept paying bribes to the police, which they were already doing at this time anyway, Parliament could pass all the laws they liked outlawing prostitution, and they'd still make money. If the mace didn't go to Little Lonsdale Street and wasn't stolen by Thomas Jeffrey or any of the builders next door or some annoyed ministers, what did happen to it? Who took it? And where is it? The simple answer, of course, 
is that we don't know and we probably never will. Anyone involved will be long dead now and while a few stories appeared in the papers in the 1930s regarding claims by people who said their parents or elderly family members had told them what happened to the mace, none of them has much of a ring of truth. They all linked back to the brothel story with ever more exaggerated and unlikely claims involving blackmail, ministerial misconduct and the mace being on display in in Madame Brussels' brothel until she died and then was quietly disposed of by two unknown men. But if the mace was on display in one of Madame Brussels' brothels, then she was taking a huge risk. Dozens of clients, some of them politicians, would have seen it and there was still a reward on offer. The idea that she kept it until she died and then someone else threw it away seems to me to have as much truth to it as the claim that Harold Holt went swimming and got abducted by aliens. Madame Brussels would never have been able to ensure the silence of every customer who came through her establishment or even that of her workers and police would have had no compunction about swooping on her if they even thought she had the mace. Which brings us back once again to that burning question. What happened? Honestly, we don't know. Despite many claims over the years by people who say they've seen it or know where it is, it's never been found and semi-regular police investigations have turned up nothing significant. The Yarra River has been searched, but if the mace ever was tossed in there, unless it got caught in the bottom and was buried in the silt, it would have been long washed out to sea by now. Could it have been melted down by the thief? Possibly. 40 pounds was nothing to be sneezed at in a depression, but it was noted by police at the time that several valuable plates all of which were worth far more than the mace, were left behind by the thief. So it was summarised that the person who took it was neither an opportunist nor a professional and that they broke into the speaker's chambers specifically to steal the mace. Could it have been a practical joke that got out of hand? Well, maybe. But remember that the mace was most likely taken in the early hours of the morning and probably involved breaking and entering. I mean, that's a lot of work and a lot of risk for a practical joke. Do I have an opinion? Really, honestly, I don't know. I don't know what I think happened to the mace. Anyone who worked in Parliament would have known it wasn't valuable. A professional thief would have taken the much more valuable silver plates and probably would have avoided breaking open the case in the first place due to the risk of noise and being discovered. The builders working next door would have struggled to carry it down the ladder and would have been spotted well before they got away with it. It's also likely, had one of the workmen taken it, that police would have found boot prints or marks in the carpet. But the space was clean apart from those three fingerprints on the windowsill and the broken case. But if you know something, dear listener, it might just be worth telling the Victorian Parliament about it. There is still, to this day, a $50,000 reward on offer for information leading to the whereabouts of the mace or its return. Although what Parliament will do with it if it ever comes back, I'm 
really not sure. After all, they got a new one. But while there's not many things in this story we can be sure about, here's two. One, the mace never went to Little Lonsdale Street. In fact, there was even an archaeological dig there in the early 2000s, right on top of the red light district. And despite the papers being sure that the mace was going to be found, it wasn't. There was nothing there. The second thing we can be sure of, the tabloids haven't changed at all in the last 132 years. Thank you so much for listening. That's all I have for you today, skeptics. As always, you can get in touch with me at my website, www.skepticalhistory.com. That's skeptical with a K or via social media. I am Juliana Byers on both LinkedIn and Instagram. Next episode, we're going to examine the story of a rather well-known Victorian who continues to ignite controversy to this day. In 1880, Edward Kelly, more famously known as Ned, was hanged for the murder of a policeman at the Melbourne Jail, now known as the Old Melbourne Jail, after he was caught during a failed attempt to derail a police train. Despite having robbed banks and held entire towns hostage over his two-year bushranging career, he's still regarded as a folk hero in many parts of Victoria. Was he really a 19th century Robin Hood or just a violent cop killer? Find out next time on The Skeptical Historian. The Skeptical Historian is research produced and hosted by me, Juliana Byers. You can find a full list of resources used in researching by going to my website and clicking on Sources. Sound effects are by Adobe Creative Cloud, Pixabay and Epidemic Sound used under the appropriate license. The music track The Whistle Funk by Telsonic was also used under appropriate licenses. Podcast hosting is by rss.com. See you next time, skeptics.